Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Uh, yeah. It's January 2nd, 6.30 in the evening. We're here at Dora's apartment with a very special guest, Matt Schultz. I'll introduce him more thoroughly in a bit. But for now, I wanted to start by saying, last time we, were, we met to record was Christmas Eve. Today's the 88th day of the war, and a few things have transpired in that past week and some change. We ushered in the new year with a barrage of rockets from Hamas, different than the fireworks in America, exciting in a different kind of way, I guess. And before we jump into a conversation that I'm extremely excited about, just a quick roundup of three items that have happened that I think are extremely important. Some of them we'll get into a little bit more today. Some of them we'll get into at another point in time. One thing was yesterday, the Supreme Court of Israel issued a ruling about the very controversial reasonableness law, striking it down with a very slim majority of eight to seven. There is some very intense back and forth going on between far-right politicians today and more moderate and leftist politicians, many of whom sit together in the war cabinet. I'm basically sitting here with bated breath, hoping, hoping that by the time we convene next time to more thoroughly get into this law and its implications for Israel, nothing too crazy pops off in the West Bank. Two other items are that the New York Times, I guess on day 84, day 83, issued its comprehensive report about the weaponization of rape and sexual violence by Hamas terrorists on October 7th. And of course, as we know, in all likelihood since and still ongoing for the more than 100 hostages still held in captivity in Gaza. I don't want to get into the New York Times report right now. I will, however, share that someone in Hamas leadership whose last name is Naim, which in Hebrew means pleasant, and he's anything but pleasant, had this to say in response to the New York Times report. And this is something that our listeners may not have heard. Denying that report, they claimed that Israeli women received, quote unquote, good treatment. Um, this is the Hamas Politburo member Basim Naim. He claimed that Western media news agencies are, quote, biased to what the Israeli propaganda says in terms of lies and slanders against the Palestinians and the resistance. He doubled down on the celebrations of October 7th, characterizing the savagery as, quote unquote, glorious falsely claiming that the New York Times report was based on accounts given by, quote, women who said they heard other women repeating these allegations, but there's no conclusive evidence that rapes took place. And he further claims that the New York Times piece contradicts the, quote, good treatment Israeli women received experience from the Palestinian fighters on October 7th, and that the accounts given by released female hostages of the terrorists, quote, eagerness to provide them all they needed despite the difficult situation in Gaza 
as a further demonstration of the falsehoods in the New York Times coverage. And to this, I'll add the third. Matt, on Nagasta at Colze? Okay. Guys, it started with this whole roundup. You know, sometimes silly Amy gets into like the nitty gritty of the news and I just want to get into it. And, and Dora was like, Amy, where's the one minute intro? Like, breathe. Good reminder. I'm feeling very frenetic. Like, I think I, I pressed next on all the music today, you know, like, and you're liked on Spotify. So I skipped from like DJ Laz kind of 90s Miami bass into like Shaw Day into like Gloria by Vivaldi in the 15 minutes before we met up tonight. <laughs> it's day 88 of the war. We rang in the new year with a barrage of rockets from Hamas. Happy new year. <laughs> Here with us today is Matthew Schultz, a writer and rabbinical student commuting between Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and Boston. He's a weekly columnist for the Jewish Journal, covering all things Israel, Judaism, and Jewish culture. He also publishes long-form Instagram posts in an attempt to spark a more nuanced and informed discussion about Israel. He's the author of What Came Before, a collection of micro-essays, and he co-hosts the How to Be podcast, with Rory O'Toole, an investigation into how to best live this one precious and wild life. Welcome, Matt. Thank you. I'm so happy you're here. Listeners, Matt is one of my favorite writers, contemporary writers on all things Israel. This was the case before October 7th, and it's very much the case since October 7th. Lately, honestly, people are like, what's your take on this? What's your take on this? And I'm like, oh, Here's Matt Schultz's like Instagram. Just go read everything. Read that post, read that post, read that post. Like he breaks it down way better than I could ever do. You're one of the most articulate, concise, and knowledgeable writers. Like the breadth of your knowledge from rabbinical texts to just personal experience, American pop culture, and the breadth of sentiment you're it's, I'm so grateful that you're here with us today. I'm, I'm just truly so excited, Thank which is, you. I guess, my explanation to the listeners about how I'm so like flustered. I feel like we have a celeb in the house. So, I mean, Matt, thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me on. I'm excited to be here and I feel <laughs> all those things about you too. We have so many things that we want to get into today. Everything from, well, listeners, everything from Kanye West's recent apology to... The Parshat Shavua. You know who is Chazal? No, who's Chazal? Chazal is like uh, initials. Oh, it's like an abbreviation. Oh, acronym? It's an acronym. Marashetevot, NBA. What is NBA? National Basket Association. National Basketball Association. <laughs> <laughs> okay, National Basketball Association. So this is called in English, initials. Initials are like DK, Door Comet, Amy Sapan, AS. That's initials. But an acronym is an abbreviation formed from the initial letters of other words and pronounced as a word like NASA. Okay. Or NBA. Well, how do you say that? An acronym. An acronym. So Chazal is mean... In Hebrew, Chachamenu Zichonam Levracha, 
which gods know how to say it in English. May the memory of her wise forefathers be a blessing. And you know what they used to say? What did they used to say? ZahavJewelry.com With one L. For anyone just jumping in and not aware of Kanye West's Instagram last week, Ma. Amy, I stop you. I stop you. It's like 10 minutes. Uh, Row. how about like asking question our lovely guest? Thank God for door. You know, I'm going back to like what I said about myself when we first met in episode one or two, like I'm just like this kite. And today I definitely have kite energy. And like, you just have to pull me down over and over again. And like door knows how to do that. So thank you door. Cause otherwise I'm just like, <sighs> how was your 2023 Matt? Well, first I want to say that I went to a moth storytelling event once and the takeaway of this one guy's story was that every duo needs to be like someone on a, a cliff holding a kite. So you need the kite person and you need the cliff person. And like one person's flying up high and the other person's grounding down. So, you know, it's a helpful, it's a, it's a powerful dynamic. It is really. And I... I'm so grateful. I have, I feel like I have two amazingly handsome, wonderful men right here, right now, just like <laughs> holding all the strings of this guy. That's just like flying really high um, today. So how, how was your 2023? What jumps out at you? 2023 was, let me start that sentence differently. Anita Shapira, who's a famous Israeli historian says that the major theme of all Israeli literature is the intrusion of the political on the personal. So I feel like that's what 2023 was. It was just, in some sense, it's hard for me to separate out personal memories from just the barrage of news that we've been swimming through the whole year from the judicial reform to the religious secular battle on Yom Kippur to obviously the war. So like, is that the background of our lives or is that our lives? Like that distinction doesn't really make sense when you're living here. I couldn't have said it better. That's yeah. I was thinking about that in Pilates earlier. Like what is, what jumps out to me about 2023 is like protests, the craziness around the reasonableness law, all the like anti-Semitism, all the discourse about it, the Jonah Hill movie, October 7th, being super triggered. Like is that my life or is that me obsessing about the external? I think it's our lives. I think maybe the distinction is not um, Israel and the rest of the world. Maybe the distinction, maybe it's a distinction in time. Maybe things used to be different. It certainly feels that way to me that there was a time when world events and political events felt more like the background context to our lives. And like when you looked out the window, you weren't confronting the same news that you saw when you looked at like at the news. But now it feels different, perhaps also in the States. That's really interesting. While you were speaking about it, I had this image of all of us with our like phones kind of tethered to each other with these like invisible little tentacles kind of connecting between us and this ether and this like 
that was the image that jumped out at me. Yeah, well, like, yeah, we know so much about each other and we know so much about everything that happens in the world. And sometimes I, I'm like, I think about feudal Europe and like these kings going to war with each other. I'm like, how they even have enough awareness of one another to go to war? Like how they managed, somehow they managed to to go to war with each other, even though they lived over the horizon from one another. But it seems... In a lot of ways, I envy that time when, like, you were allowed to have a local perspective and not sort of constantly confronted with every global catastrophe that's happening all at once. And as we're dealing with here right now, we're, we are dealing with our own local catastrophe, but so much of what it means to deal with it is to confront how it looks from the outside, to, see, to feel the world sort of trained on us like uh, an audience. On a personal level, one of the things that I'm I'm personally confronting now more is I'm really trying to not run from discomfort. I'm trying to get better at being comfortable with what there is and to really just not run away into work, not run away into substances, not run away into like fun and friends and all these different things. And it's really coming to a head now because it's like you're living through this collective trauma and then you can't really escape it. So my screen time on my phone is up by like 300% since October 7th. I looked at my average screen time last week and I was shocked. It was like six and a half hours just on my phone, not to mention my laptop, Mm -hmm. which is probably like around the same. So And I'm doing all the things, you know, I'm doing the breath work and I'm doing the yoga and I'm going on the Pilates and I'm going to the healing. I'm doing the things and I'm writing my journal and I'm, it's like a whole, it's like self-care on steroids. And still that frontier of what I really marveled at this recently, like, I guess maybe not during feudal times, but an earlier human who may not have struggled as much as I do with things like intimacy, you know, that it's gotten so saturated with all these possibilities and everything, the world that we live in, and we have all this information and we have all this connection, but really basic, simple connection is kind of like elusive for me. Yeah. We've definitely chosen collectively as a society that we want life to be more materially comfortable at the expense of it being more spiritually difficult. I think that's just like, that's the choice we've made and we see the results of that. So we have like technology that makes life really physically convenient. Um, And we somehow see that as like a, a legitimate trade for our mental health and our spiritual health and our emotional health. We're like, okay, we're okay with that trade. Or we're not okay with it, but we we continue to make it every day. If I don't open my Instagram and I don't see Kanye West's post in maybe Google translated Hebrew, did it happen? You know, like that, if a tree falls in a forest thing. 
And oh, then it definitely happened. <laughs> it happened. And now the question is, I was looking at that post again today before, before this meeting and, um, so many people, I love that on Instagram, they show you like the comments that your friends write. So like all the local creators, like the Israelis have just been like trolling him in Hebrew and the comments are just hilarious. Like they're just digging at him for everything. The, the mistakes in the Hebrew, cause it clearly wasn't written by an Israeli or maybe it was written by, I don't even know, but it's pretty interesting. Jokes aside, there's this real question that I've seen bubble up online over the past week about like, can we forgive Kanye? Is it, it, it is he forgivable after everything that that's happened, the DEFCON three comments, and then his, uh, how I'm anti-Semitic. I just fucked a Jewish bitch track that dropped. The favorite text. <laughs> favorite track. And if, if you want to listen to us, uh, you know, get into Kanye a little bit more. We have an episode, I think it's 24, 26. Uh, it's very obvious which episode it is because it's called how I'm anti-Semitic. Yeah, you are. So, um, you know, a week ago or a few weeks ago, he was in Miami and he wore this like black Ku Klux Klan hood at an album release party. And the word on the street is that he's having a difficult time finding a label for his new record, Vultures. So maybe that's what's motivating this apology. Someone I follow online, Zach, his handle is the Dandelion King. His perspective on the forgiveness thing was like, guys, how do you think it looks like to young black men that he lost his Adidas deal after making all those statements that the Jews control media and everything? And then there were repercussions. Doesn't it just like reinforce it? Maybe we should forgive just, you know, to kind of not continue perpetuating these stereotypes that we control media, which is an interesting kind of way of looking at forgiveness, I guess, that there's some sort of ulterior motive behind it, which isn't how I, I feel like forgiveness is something with clean hands. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that maybe about like forgiveness and what you think. Well, I mean, regarding the Adidas thing, it's like, we're not Adidas. So, you know, that that's on them. And if, if they want to sort of risk their brand by associating with someone who's so, um, can say anything volatile, can say anything at any time, but we've, we've lived through like five or six years where we've seen people get dropped from labels and brands and everything. Um, for all sorts of things, for for Me Too stuff, for racism stuff, um, some of it quite deserved, sometimes not deserved, sometimes like very light comments have gotten professors fired, all this different stuff. So like, why should we now, when it comes to Jews, start worrying about if it's going to create like a, a cycle of resentment? We didn't worry about that with anyone else, even though there's probably evidence that... Um, it probably does, like, I think there's, for, like, the incel community, the Me Too cancellations have created that same cycle of resentment. Like, oh, because sexism, I think, is, like, this similar to anti-Semitism in that it rests in a perception that this, like, persecuted minority is actually running the world and completely doming you all the time. So in the same way that 
people who already are inclined towards anti-Semitism will look at him losing the Adidas deal and be like, oh, look, the Jews control everything. And now they're like starving out Kanye and cutting off his, you know, his work, his, his financial streams because he's anti-Semitic. People like people who are inclined to be sexist are like, look, these women complain about sexism, but actually look at how they pull the strings and topple these powerful men for like these, these infractions. So just like we don't pander to the incel community, we shouldn't pander to the anti-Semite community. If someone's like a horrifying bigot, unless we're, we're inclined towards clemency across the board, I don't see any reason for increased clemency to, for Jews to be obligated to be more forgiving than women and people of color and gay people and trans people. Because we live in a really unforgiving society, by which I mean we live in a cancel culture. So if we live, like, and this is the premise of, of um, what's his name's book, um, Jews Don't Count, David Badil. He's like, he's not in favor of of cancel culture, but he says like, okay, if that's what we're doing, let's stop carving out the Jews. Like if, if this is our reaction to prejudice, then let's at least not be prejudiced in our reaction to prejudice. That reminds me of Shylock's soliloquy in The Merchant of Venice, which we got into in one of the episodes. And for so long, you know, you probably studied it also growing up in the States at some point. The Merchant of Venice? Yeah. No, I've never Oh, really? read it. I went to see an outdoor perf- performance of it, but it was so hammy and over the top I had to walk away. So I don't know if you walked away before you got to this next part, but Shylock gives this soliloquy. And, you know, a lot of people remember it as like, hath, hath not a Jew eyes and ears and pain and lips and et cetera. But when I really got into it in October, it was like, wait a second. It's not just like, oh, Jews are also like living people with organs and stuff. There's this back end where it's really about revenge, where Shylock is basically like, if I'm living in a world where people are exacting revenge, don't you dare come at me and get mad at me for wanting revenge. And it's this really, really interesting passage. And I'd like to, I guess it's a really good way to jump into I mean, this double standard, right? What's really reverberating in my head right now is Ilana Glazer's latest. You know, she had like two posts about the situation here. And in her second one, she's like, oh, of course I'm sad. There were this person and this person, these two good Jews that were murdered on October 7th. And oh, another good Jew that was murdered later in October, the, the, I think, rabbi who was murdered in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. So according to Ilana Glazer, three good Jews, three good Jews got murdered in October. And I think that's a good segue into, you know, talking about Ilana, Ilana Glazer, who in one of your posts, if I may quote, I, I so love your posts. You described her as someone who bagels it up for cheap Jewish laughs. Yeah, well, she... I think has just been a very disappointing Jewish celebrity 
in a lot of different ways, not just during this war, also before, you know, she and uh, Abby, like the Broad City Girls, were supposed to come to Israel to film an episode, but they didn't come because there were, there was, we were under attack from Hamas then as now. So it was, they canceled it because it was too dangerous for them, not too dangerous for us. We're supposed to live with it and put up with it, but it was too dangerous for them. So instead they filmed this um, episode about going on birthright where the, the whole thing was, was took place on a plane because they didn't actually come here. And I, most of the Jewish people I know liked the episode. They felt like, oh, they're doing, I recognize all this Jewish humor. I feel seen, I feel represented. I thought it was like deeply disturbing. Like, first of all, she made jokes in the episode about rabbis sucking babies' penises during Brit Milah. Now, there is this practice of sucking the wound, which is true. And that's what they were joking about. And Jews make jokes about that um, between ourselves. And, uh, but to, to, to portray rabbis as like these lecherous pedophiles on a, on a popular TV show that's watched by a broad, a broad, a broad non-Jewish audience as like, what are you doing? Like, don't you care? Don't you know that people already think Jews are lecherous and, and perverted. And then it was this whole thing where birthright was portrayed as this like sick, perverse way to breed Jews. They just want to hook Jews up together so that we can procreate more. Now that might very well be a, a mission of birthright to help Jews meet and form connections with the idea that they might possibly get married and and start Jewish families. So she's not wrong about that, but to portray that goal as sinister, like, why is that sinister? Why is it problematic um, for Jews to meet other Jews and potentially get married? And, you know, this idea that in marriage is is inherently problematic and perverse as a as a communal objective i think is like already showing her cards so she's been showing her cards for a, a long time i think i can't help but think about 2024 also in terms of primary season kicking off this month, the elections. And I think so much about how public sentiment is shaped essentially on social media now. And a lot of people are like, why do you care so much about what these celebrities think? You know, Ilana Glazer will post that or Kim Kardashian will post something or the Hadid sisters or Cynthia Nixon, <laughs> you know, that this is an apartheid state or fucking hunger striking for a ceasefire while we had a ceasefire in place. And they're so connected to each other, public sentiment, political sentiment, and something else. A reverberate is going to be my official word of the day. We're sponsored also by reverberate today, but something that reverberates for me is about 
how one of our conversations about how, you know, your perspective on this place has changed and going back, if we may, into your Instagram posts, which honestly to our listeners, please just, we'll, we'll put, um, Matt's handle in the show notes. Do yourself a favor, just read through everything. Watch. It's fantastic. There's, there's posts there on everything from Cynthia Nixon's hunger strike to, you know, um, I love the one that you called the paradox of stone, I think about ruins and the Talmud and uh, just everything is in there. Vox and misinformation. It's so well written. And speaking to you this week about, you know, one of the underlying reasons that you write these posts and kind of where it came from. And I, I think it would, there's so many things obviously that I want to talk to you about, but it's really one of the things that jumps out at me from all of our conversations about how your own perspective has changed. And I, I wonder if you could elaborate on that a bit. Yeah. So I think a lot of people have this story on the left. You hear it often that they were raised in a super Zionist pro Israel environment, and then they got to college and they were exposed then to the sort of Jewish voice for peace perspective on the Palestinian issue. And then they, and then it's sort of a conversion narrative. They break with the pro-Israel and they become often anti-Zionist activists. So my story moves in a, a different direction. I didn't grow up in a Zionist or a non-Zionist house. I mean, Israel was just not a topic of discussion, really, um, for no particular ideological reason. And when I later came here first as a study abroad student, later I moved here. I was living here, but I was very much like my, my, my thoughts on politics were really far to the left. And even as I was living here, just sort of had a reflexive anti-Israel perspective on a lot of things, a root assumption that Israel was a bad faith actor and bore most of the moral responsibility for the conflict. And that if we're pointing the finger of blame, it's usually best to point it best and most accurate to point it at Israel. So about five years ago, I started working for the LA Jewish journal and part of my uh, responsibilities, part of what I had to start doing was reading the news in a really thorough way from a lot of different sources. So my my boss, Shmuel Rosner, he's a, a an Israeli writer, a great writer, also worth um, reading his columns about the war. You know, I used to be like his rebellious left-wing renegade employee, but my politics have really shifted over that the time that I've been reading the news from more perspectives than just the front page of Haaretz or the foreword and reading these columnists and analysts who, who see things from different perspectives, seeing what this paper completely ignores because there's no way for them to spin it, seeing what this paper completely ignores because it's no way for them to spin it on the other side. So it's been a lesson in media literacy and it's, reshaped my my view on a lot of this conflict. And one thing, you know, 
I think before I started this job, the difference between Gaza and the West Bank was lost on me, as it's lost on a lot of people right now. The idea that Israel withdrew and tried to unilaterally end this conflict after having tried and failed through uh, to, to end it diplomatically, all of that story, all of that history, I was not aware of that. I would have called both Gaza and the West Bank occupied territories then. So filling in those gaps has, yeah, it's completely changed how I read the news and when I'm able to call bullshit on the news. And But it's, it's, a, it's a big ask to ask people to read every major newspaper every day. But that's kind of what it takes to have media literacy in a certain, in, on a certain issue. You have to have been following the story for a long time. You know, a lot of people are just jumping into this Israel-Palestine conflict now, and they want to be experts on it, even though they're just tuning in now. That's not really possible. It takes some sort of investment in both like in two dimensions, in like the time dimension and also in the like ideological dimension. Like, are you looking at the analysis from different sides and at least confronting what other perspectives have to say on it? Kudos to you for being able to change your mind. I think that that's such a brave and courageous act, you know, to be able to say, oh, I, I thought one way and now I think differently. And to being able to be so open and also so humble. Um, and that's just some of what I love about you, Matt. It's the Kanye in me. Because <laughs> he, well, and that's one more thing I want to say about Kanye is that the real reason we can't accept his apology is because like his, his mind isn't settled yet. This is just another step on his long emotional journey with the Jewish people as a symbol of something in his like twisted psychological landscape. So like, yeah, he apologized today. It's not even worth accepting it or not accepting it because like next week he's going to like convert to Judaism. And then the week after that he'll convert to Islam. You know, it's just like the journey's not over. So when it ends, then we can evaluate. We need to find a name for our podcast inside the podcast because I want to start every time with like, hi, you're listening to... Mm. Um, oh man, we can't use this. I want to call it the bling ring, but no. Mm-mm. Why not, not? No, because this isn't blingy. No. Blinging? Mm-mm. I want, you know, solid gold. I just like calling it solid gold. Okay, you're listening to solid gold. Yeah, you're listening to solid gold. And today in Solid Gold, we're speaking about... ZahavJewelry.com with one L for gold body jewelry. Use discount code DOOR24 for an additional 35% off your entire order. If you use this coupon code, you'll get a free pair of 14 karat gold earrings in your order. Stay tuned. Our next episode, Solid Gold, we're going to speak about expressing yourself improve your self-esteem, your English, your style. And that's what I have to say for today. See you next week. Peace out. (laughs) 
even though I still want to get into 2023 with you and so many other things, as we approach the last part of the episode, I'd love to look ahead. It's January 2nd of all of 2024 ahead of us. This reasonableness law was kind of a, the timing. I mean, I just don't, but anyway, it, when we look forward, there's so much possibility and a lot of people want to talk about what's going to happen with Gaza after this and what's going to happen with politics after this. And I'd love to talk to you about what happens to Jewish life and culture after this in your mind or anything else about the future that you'd like to share? Yeah. So we're, I mean, to touch on the 2023 of it and the the looking forward also. So we had this incident this last year where you had uh, a controversially um, and illegally gender-segregated Yom Kippur prayer service in a public square in Tel Aviv that was um, disrupted somewhat aggressively, I would say, by left-wing protesters. So that was, I I think that was societally traumatic. And the sight of Jews, whether or not um, the, the people leading the prayer service were, were were out of line in doing that after they had been they had there was a high court ruling that they could not do the gender segregation in a public space in Tel Aviv. So they were in the wrong there. And they're they're not a great organization. We don't like them. It was a political stunt. It was cynical. There's all sorts of bad things we can say about them and and say that really they started it. And I would agree with that. Nevertheless, the sight of Jews aggressively disrupting a prayer service in Israel on Yom Kippur was disturbing for a lot of people, myself included, as someone who lives on that religious, secular fault line. And tries to make sense of what that means. So now we're in a different place and that's not our biggest problem anymore. And I think that if we look at the broader picture, there is a reconciliation happening between religious and secular in Israel. The stark divide between like the Jewish atheist and the ultra-Orthodox, that's kind of a relic of in older Israel. My my boss, Shmuel Rosner, again, he wrote a book, which I edited, um, called Israeli Judaism, which is about the breakdown and the blurring of these lines. And it's really fascinating. An authentic form of Israeli Judaism is bubbling up from the people. And it's still sort of in flux what it's going to look like. But what it's not going to look like is American-style Reform Judaism or American-style Conservative Judaism. It's going to have its own flavor to it that's determined by a lot of different things. The fact that your average Israeli has like an an innate ability to engage with Jewish text and ritual without any real education in it, just because of the language. Which means that American-style progressive Judaism, which is so rabbi-focused, it's all focused on institutions and professionals, because you need those educators and you need those leaders. There's not as much need of that here. So it's not going to be as denominational and as institutional. 
So that's like the the sociological picture. We see more people engaging in ritual. We see people who, if you ask them, are you secular? Are you religious? They would say, I'm secular. But if you actually look at their behavior, they light Shabbat candles. They observe all these different chagim. They observe holidays. They might not eat bread on, on Pesach. Are they really secular? That's the the sociological picture of this group of what uh, my boss calls Jews Israelis. You know, they're not orthodox. They're not secular. There's something in between. But what does that really mean if we don't if we don't look at it from a sociological perspective and we look at it as a at a religious perspective? Is there religious content there? Is this actually is this just cultural? Are they just doing rituals because it's their culture, or is there a genuine spiritual life that that stands behind that? So. I don't know the answer to that question. It's probably different for everyone. But I do know that right now, in the wake of October 7th, in the wake of this huge atrocity that struck at the heart of secular Israeli, the secular Israeli population, these are people who right now, in a lot of cases, are turning to Judaism, or not turning to Judaism, turning to to God, you know, uh, however they conceive of that, for comfort and to pray. Like this woman I saw on, the TV, on TV yesterday on the news whose daughter is kidnapped, and she said, I'm, I'm praying every night. I've never prayed before. I've never talked to God before, but I am now. So this experience, in my opinion, is also going to shape the inner content of religious life for this population, again, of of Jews, Israelis, people who are not ultra-Orthodox, but do have a connection to their Judaism. This experience is gonna is is going to shape the actual inward spiritual content of what it means to be in that demographic. Because people need deeper answers right now about what it means to be a Jew in this country and how to frame this experience and how to make meaning in a really awful and devastating time after you've faced some of the worst tragedies that a, a human being and that a people can can face. So we'll see what that looks like going forward. But I don't, what American Jews always want from this country, which is laws about reform weddings being accepted and reform conversions being accepted, I don't think that's what it's going to look like. I think that's an American paradigm, and I think we're going to have to sort of stay tuned to see what the Israeli people do with this sociological and spiritual convergence. In that court ruling yesterday, part of the holding um, was that the amendment, the reasonableness law, which would have been an amendment to the basic laws and listeners. That's a whole episode within itself. That's another dream within a dream. But I really appreciated that part of the ruling said that the amendment causes severe and unprecedented harm to the core characteristics of Israel as a democratic state. So I really do think that this is going to be a year where we're 
as we were a few years ago when there was controversy with the nation state law, I do very much think that, and you articulated it so brilliantly, that there really is going to be this question about what is this new um, kind of form of Judaism in this Jewish state? And what does it mean for us to be a democracy? And those, those questions, I don't know in what form that very public and very, very um, energized debate is going to take. I don't know what form. It's probably going to be a lot of protests. I really hope the West Bank doesn't pop off, as I said before. But these questions are going to be really central in 2024. There were three things I said at the beginning of the episode. The third was that Mia Shem, one of the hostages who was released, whose video you may or may not have seen, she was the first hostage featured in a Hamas propaganda video that was released in October. She gave interviews to Channel 12 and 13 that directly refute what the Hamas Politburo chief Naim had to say. There she talks about what happened to her. And I, I'm not sure if the English translations came out, but I, I strongly recommend that our listeners get a hold of those interviews and watch them. And she talks there about how she was really treated and how she was forced to speak on these videos. And even when her arm was shot at close range, that a Hamas terrorist tried to have his way with her. And I'll end on this note that I, with all my heart, really, truly hope that the hostages are released ASAP and that we live in a global society that will firmly take a stand against the violence of all forms that we've seen in the name of intellectual resistance or whatever we've seen. I really sincerely hope that this year is a, a very big wake-up call for the people that are on the, mm, I'm not sure, it's really a close call on the moral questions here. I really, really, really hope that by the time we get to the end of this year, we don't see the kind of discourse on the college campuses as we saw in the last quarter of 2023. Hope that the hostages come back. I hope that the war ends. I hope our soldiers come home. And thank you listeners for tuning in and for listening. I'm wishing you all a very healthy, as happy as can be, new year. Matt, is there anything else you'd like to say? Couldn't be more grateful and I wish that we had five hours to talk. <laughs> Maybe if, if you'd love to come on again with this kite person that I am. We didn't get into Herzl and Wagner and all these other things. <laughs> oh yeah, there's always more to discuss, but we can, yeah, we should have more conversations. I love that. Thank Me you too. for coming in. Is there Thank anything you. else you'd like to tell our listeners before we wrap? No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. If you enjoyed our conversation and want to stay connected, there are a few ways you can do that. Follow us on Instagram at October 7th, the podcast for more content, 
updates and sneak peeks into upcoming episodes. We also have a Patreon if you'd like to consider supporting us. Same handle, October 7th, the podcast. And if you just feel like saying hi or whatever, feel free to shoot us an email at October 7th, the podcast at gmail.com. Big thank you to Shema, Jonathan Gall, Maya Schlesinger, Dor Comet, of course, Matt Schultz. I'm Amy Sapan. Stay safe and stay tuned.